You will remain standing for the reading of God's Word on which the sermon is based. The Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Friends, if you've been with us for about a month, we have discussed a new series called Come and See Jesus from the Gospel of John. We've seen chapter 1 for a few weeks, starting with the prologue, the first 18 verses of chapter, chapter 1, understanding the identity of Jesus. And then we looked at the significance of Jesus' ministry from John's testimony and how he called his first disciples. And in all those weeks, we have been seeing Jesus as the reason for living, the light of the world, the Word becoming flesh, the Lamb of God, and then the invitation to be his disciples. Come and see Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Caller. So today we're going to look at a new section that begins Jesus' public ministry from John chapter 2 up to John chapter 12. Don Carson noted that these 11 chapters in the Gospel of John are often called the Book of Signs because that's where Jesus reveals His glory. But if you notice with me, if you bring your Bible app or um, regular Bible with you, you're going to notice that from chapter 2 to chapter 4, that beginning of public uh, ministry of our Lord, the section has two bookends. It began with a wedding in Cana that we just read, then followed uh, Jesus to Capernaum, to Judea, Samaria, and then he circled back to Cana at the end of chapter 4. Now, underlying all those miracles and engagements and interactions that Jesus did in these chapters is one central theme. The theme of how Jesus makes everything new. That the old order of things are passing away and the new order of reality is bursting in upon the scene of history. And in chapter 2, Jesus made new wine. 
And then he built new temple. In chapter 3, he tells Nicodemus he had to experience new birth. And in chapter 4, he explains to the woman at the well that there is a new way of worshiping throughout the world. Essentially, what Jesus is trying to say to us, he wants to make everything new. He wants to make you new creation in him. This is what the apostles uh, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If, if anyone trusts in Christ, then that person begins to experience a new creation. The way you look at the world will change. The way you look at your family, the way you look at your job, the way you look at your career, the way you look at money, that all will change because you are now a new creation in Jesus Christ. That's what, what, what we're going to look at in the next few weeks. And I pray that each week you are more and more convinced that I am a new creation in Christ and therefore there are things in my life that need to be aligned with that fact that I am newly created in Christ. But let's look at these first uh, verses, uh, 11 verses, uh, using the three uh, subheadings. The first one, what the wine means, and I love this uh, artwork that you saw before. Um, and it's, it's about wine. Who, who, if you are in Australia, I suppose you have tasted wine. I do drink wine. And, uh, this is uh, a passage about wine. It doesn't encourage uh, um, you know, drinking irresponsibly just because Jesus went to a wedding in Cana and <laughs> created lots of wine. But uh, in the Bible, wine is always something positive, and we're going to see why this is important. So the first point, what the wine means, we're going to look at how the wine is served and how we can get the wine. So what, what does uh, the wine symbolize in this passage? Well, friends, if you have uh, followed the reading, they say that uh, they have no wine. The wine has run out. Wine symbolizes joy, right? Because this is happening in a wedding. And in, the, in those days, weddings, uh, unlike today, can go for a long time, not just for a few hours, but it can go on for days. In fact, for seven days, for a week. And unlike uh, contemporary weddings, this wedding in Cana was a homemade, kind of a do-it-yourself wedding for the entire extended family and, in fact, the whole community in that small town. So if things go south, if things um, have uh, problems within the weddings, you don't complain to the event organizer or to the uh, wedding uh, master of ceremony or to the hotel manager. You don't complain to all those people, but you're going to blame yourself. So this is the situation Jesus found himself in. There was something that was completely unthinkable that took place in that wedding. The wine had run out. It was a moment of potentially a personal and lasting embarrassment because it will mark the young couple's lives 
with a stigma that will last forever. Now, you have to remember that the, in, in the Mediterranean culture at the time, and still is today, there's a very strong honor and shame culture, like a lot of Eastern culture today. So imagine you are the parents of this young couple who got married. You, know, you were thinking, my daughter will be reminded until the day she dies, this is the girl whose wedding hasn't got enough wine. She would become the talk of the town. The town would have remembered that event forever. So Mary was just simply bringing this problem to Jesus. She knew who her son is, and that's why she just reported the problem without telling Jesus what to do. She just said, they ran out of wine. And if you notice, the reply of Jesus was very cryptic. Now, as we go through the Gospel of John, you would find a lot of Jesus' responses were just completely coming out of nowhere because it's just not aligned with the, the question that was asked. So in this case, when Mary reported that the, water, uh, the wine had run out, he said, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Translation? Woman, why are you bothering me? I'm not ready to die yet. Doesn't help, does it? It's a strange reply. Now, commentators had debated what, what it actually meant, but Jesus was not being disrespectful, but he was saying that at the beginning of his public ministry, he now had a different relationship with Mary. He had entered into the purpose of his mission on earth so that he would place every other thing subordinate to that fulfillment of his mission. Mary was to relate to him no longer as his son, as her son, but as her Messiah, her Savior. He was not just the son of Mary now. He is the son of God. He is the son of man. So this is not Jesus being difficult, being obnoxious. He perceives something that is more fundamental behind the factual. He saw a problem that is more profound than just a social embarrassment. Yes, running out of wine is a social disgrace. Running out of wine is a disgraceful calamity for a lot of uh, the Jewish uh, uh, people at the time. It wasn't just a major social mistake, but Jesus saw something else. Jesus knew that the party did not deliver because the wine had run out. But what he saw really, that the joy people have in this world will run out. And he knew that it, was, it would cost him a lot to fix that. Now, this is just a metaphor for the reason of why he came. The joy always ran out in our lives. And then we go blaming people, blaming ourselves, blaming God. We just blame a lot of things in our lives. There's a famous story of uh, a drunk standing, because we talk about wine, standing under a street lamp searching for something. 
Now a policeman uh, came along, asked him what he's looking for, and the man answered, my keys. My keys were missing. So they're now both searching for the keys. Now after a while, the policeman wants to know whether the man is sure that he lost his keys here under a street lamp. And this drunk man answers, no, not here. I lost them back there. But there is way too dark to find them. The light is better here. Now that's a foolish uh, man there, but that's a beautiful illustration of how we often act like that man. We keep looking for things in all the wrong places. We look for joy in our lives in all the wrong places. We rationalize the light is better here. But have we ever stopped and asked ourselves, have we been looking for joy in all the wrong places? I always tell my MBA students a story about this successful, uh, nearly uh, retired professional. And he was lamenting when he's about to retire, looking back his successful career over the past 45 years. This is what he said, I spent my life stepping up the ladder of the organization only to find out that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. I've spent all my life stepping up this hierarchy, this, this ladder, thinking that I want to reach the top and I'll be happy, I'll be successful, I'll be popular, people will come to me and praising me and so on and so forth, only to find out that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. When I reach the top, there's not much there. So that's where this, this disappointment comes in when you try to find joy in your career. Or what about marriage? Because now we're talking about a, a wedding, right? Those of you who are single, you thought of, uh, I need to marry someone one day. If only I have a great, happy, wonderful marriage, then my life would be complete. I would be complete. Now, if you have read uh, The Meaning of Marriage, uh, the book that Tim Keller wrote on the subject, he quoted uh, a Duke University ethics professor, Stanley Howras, on the reason why no two people are compatible so that it's always impossible, listen to this, always impossible to find a true soulmate. Howard was, uh, wrote this, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry, and if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. The moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. Now, you heard me right. We always marry the wrong person. Now, if your spouse said something along that line to you <laughs> out of the blue one day, that's fine. That's, that's quite true, actually. Don't get offended by it. 
But why? Here is what uh, Howard was wrote. We never know whom to marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while. And he will change. She will change. And for marriage being the enormous thing it is, means that we are not the same person after we have entered that institution of marriage. The primary challenge of marriage then is to learn how to love and care for the stranger to whom you will find yourself married to. But not only marriage profoundly changes us, I guess the more fundamental reason is the two people who entered into marriage are spiritually broken by sin, which among other things means to be self-centered. We marry a self-centered person. So how could you expect a selfish, immature person suddenly become an angel when he or she falls in love with you? So people with uh, good and happy marriage will say to single people, don't look for happiness, don't look for true joy in marriage because it will not deliver, it won't be enough. You will then blame the marriage, you will then blame your spouse because the joy this side of heaven will always run out. That's what the wedding in Cana tells us. The joy in this world will always run out. Now, friends, uh, you might say, what uh, does Christianity have to do with it? Because Christianity itself is always so uptight. It's always filled with guilt. Jesus himself has been known in some secular circle as the cosmic killjoy. But notice what this passage tells us today. Jesus was invited to the wedding. He was there. He was there to celebrate with the couple. Not only him, but also his newly minted disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and John himself. And this is only one of the many stories that tells us Jesus was always, almost uh, always welcome among those having a good time. He did not spoil the good time. Jesus was not antisocial, let alone a cosmic killjoy. In fact, of himself, he said this, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. He loves going to a party. He loves eating and drinking. There was a book that, uh, um, that, whose title is Meals with Jesus. In fact, I, I preached through a series on Meals with Jesus from the Gospels, not only the Gospel of John, but other synoptic Gospels. That's why his opponents attack him by saying, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. See, Jesus loved parties, he did not kill uh, our joy. In the first temptation of the wilderness, you remember the devil asked Jesus to turn stones into bread for himself. But now in the first miracle in Cana, Mary asked Jesus to turn water into wine for others. Now you know what, friends? Jesus refused the first, 
but he did the second. He refused to do a miracle for himself, but he did do the miracle for others. Because he loved us. You know, if, if I were Jesus, my first miracle of all the things that he had done, if I were him, I would not turn water into wine. I would raise someone from the death. That would be my first miracle because I want that to be a big show of supernatural, miraculous work that I can do. Right? But have you ever wondered why Jesus started his first miracle with something so menial, you know, in a small town, in, in, in a party? Because the wine that was turned into wine uh, the water that was turned into wine symbolizes joy. He did not raise the dead. He merely created 700 liters of unusually highly rated wine for the party. Six stone of jars with 20 to 30 gallons, I've done the math here, equals 100 to 180 gallons. That's nearly 700 liters. In our modern wine bottles, that's 1,000 vintage wine bottles. That's a lot of wine bottles. The good stuff only. And that's a lot of wine for a small town wedding. So the quantity was just amazing. You know, this 1,000 wine bottles. John MacArthur uh, wrote this, Jesus not only rescued the bride and groom from an embarrassing situation, but the leftover wine also provided them with a generous wedding present. Because you can't finish 1,000 bottles of wine in a week, no matter how many people you invited. And in the Bible, wine is a sign of God's blessing. And Jesus was telling us today, as well as his audience at the time, that the joy he gave is an abundant joy. God's blessing is never scarce. God's blessing is abundant. And when the master of the feast tasted that wine, he said, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, can you please help uh, clicking to the next? Yep, this one here, thank you. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So I, I imagine this, this master of, of the feast, you know, he, he did he, the, the five steps of tasting wine. Do you know the five steps of tasting wine? If you have been to any uh, wineries in Victoria or elsewhere in this uh, wine country, um, you know, the, first he see the color of the, um, of the wine and then he swirl and then he would sniff it and then swirl it again and sniff it again and then uh, sip it and then he would savor it. Hmm, this is truly a good wine. And this is, this is something that he said not only to himself but publicly declaring uh, that. And what does it mean? The fact that the wine, until the end of the party, is still the best wine. That actually tells us the principle that the best is 
yet to come for God's people. The best is yet to come for God's people. Most people keep the worst to the last, but God gives the best to the last. This is referring to the marriage supper of the Lamb, that great banquet that God would lay out for us, for all His people. You will, never, you will uh, uh, enter into a feast that will last forever. This is what John said in uh, chapter 1, 16. From His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. When you begin to see Him face to face, said Charles Spurgeon, when you enter into the closest fellowship with nothing to disturb you, nothing to distract you, then shall you say the best wine is kept until now. Friends, without Jesus, the last is the worst. But with Jesus, the best is yet to come. Without Jesus, the ephemeral joy the world gives conceals the worst behind the grave. With Jesus, the everlasting joy you experience today is merely a glimpse, merely a pointer of a much better, undiluted, unmitigated, pure joy. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity something that I think captures this, this beautiful, joyful thing that we're going to experience in eternity, but not here. This is what he wrote. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. So if none of our, uh, the earthly pleasures can satisfy my desire, it doesn't mean that the universe is a fraud or that you're a failure, but probably because the earthly pleasure isn't meant to satisfy that deep desire that you have. It probably means that you are created for the new world, not for this world. The wine symbolizes the joy that Jesus gives the abundant joy, the first-rate joy, and the lasting joy. You remember Moses turning water into blood, showing that the law results in death? Jesus turned water into wine, showing that His grace brings the true joy that we will never be able to attain ourselves. And that's why John wrote in John 1:17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's what the wine symbolizes. Let's look at the second um, point here. How is the wine servant? This is much shorter than the first one. You look at what Mary said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Just do it. It's not just a symbol of a shoe corporation, but it is something that we perhaps should adopt as our life uh, motto. See, we're not told exactly how Jesus performed this miracle. According to what we read before, he did not even say a word. He did not uh, perform a ceremony. He did not have to uh, wave the magic wand and say, Wingardium Leviosa, you know, like some people. Uh, he did not say anything. He did not need to say anything. He simply exercised his will and the miracle was done. So the process of growing the grape, the ripening of the grape, the crushing of the grape, the fermentation of the grape, this process was all expedited by 
the same power that created the world. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus could have filled the pots himself, these stone water jars, but he did not. He asked the servants, fill the jars with water, fill them up to the brim. And it took the faith of, of uh, it, it took faith on behalf of the servants when they, imagine you, you are one of the servants, right? Bringing these stone water jars, which is quite big, to the master of the feast, completely believing that this water had turned into wine. Imagine how angry the master of the feast would be if they brought him simply tap water and not wine. Yet in faith, they obeyed the word of Jesus. Now the faithful servant who did the work knew the greatness of the miracle. They did not miss the blessings because of uh, disobedience. So friends, what Mary said to them is something that we should consider. Do whatever he tells you. Mary did not say uh, a lot in the Gospel of John, but the things that she said perhaps are something that we should be paying attention to. When she said, just do it, that means our obedience has to be entire, i.e., whatever Jesus says, do it. Whatever Jesus said, not just the ones that we like, we don't pick and choose, whatever he says. And our obedience is to be exclusive. Whatever he says, not someone else, but he, Jesus, said to the exclusion of all. And lastly, our obedience has to be specific. Whatever he says, do that. Don't do other things, but do that very thing. Not something like it, not something partway, not something that is equivalent, but do whatever, that, that specific thing. So whatever he says to you, just do it. Now that should be our governing principle in our career, in our love life, in our marriage, in every single thing that we do. Because when you do that, you become a channel of joy for other people. And when you do that, you also experience this blessing. Now, friends, it's amazing that the master of the feast did not know. If you click on to the next uh, slide. Um, the master of the feast did not know what just happened, but the servants knew all about it. This is the blessing reserved for those people who knew that they had to obey and serve the Lord. Have you experienced, those of you, and I'm talking to uh, Christian friends in this room, have you experienced the mighty hand of God works through your life? Because if you have followed Jesus for years and you have never seen these miraculous ways that God works in you and through you, 
your life as a Christian is quite dry, isn't it? But I do believe that if you have served Him for years in obedience, you would experience the blessings that other people did not know. And friends, that's what uh, the servants experienced. That's how they serve the wine, the joy for other people, becoming channel of blessing. The last point, the third point, how you can get the wine. And the clue is in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana, at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And this is quite peculiar. John did not use the word miracle or work of power, the two phrases that were used in the other Gospels, but John used the word sign. This is his first sign. So the question is, if this is a sign, it's a sign of what? What is this sign pointing to? And it's a sign that points to the glory of Jesus. It's a sign that manifests the glory of Christ in order that we are drawn to Christ in faith. But how does that glory um, manifest? If you remember Jesus' answer to Mary, he said, Woman, what do you want from me? My hour has not yet come. Whenever Jesus spoke about the hour, my hour. He always referred to one thing and one thing only, his death. You would see that in John 7, 38, 20, 12, 23, 20, 28, 13, 1, 17, 1. In John 17, 1, for example, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. He talked about his death. So why did he talk about his death when he was to deal with this problem of wine shortage, that the joy has run out? Because the only way he can bring that joy for us is through his death on the cross. We can only enter the joy through his death. The only way we can sip the cup of joy is if he drinks the cup of God's wrath for our sins. The reason the wine is made in the purification jar is to show that the only way you have the great wine is if his blood is shed for purification of all. This is where the gospel is connected to this passage. The glory of Christ is revealed on the cross when he died for us. And only by his death we can experience the true joy, lasting joy forever. And you notice the last clause there in the, in, in, in the verse said, the disciples believe in him. Now, of course, they believe in him because last week we saw that they followed Jesus, but now their belief was deepened. Their belief was re-expressed. And this is quite typical in the Christian life. When God does great things in our life, we believe in Him over and over again. But notice, friends, that the master of the feast did not believe. 
We did not read that. The bride and the groom did not believe. Even the servants who saw the miracle, who saw what Jesus did, they did not believe. It was the disciples who believed. So friends, today, would you come and see Jesus once again for who he is? And said to him, Lord, I want to experience that joy. Let us pray.